seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our, or in some versions, your joy complete. This is the living and abiding word of God. Thanks be to his most holy name for providing it for our instruction and edification. Now, last Sunday evening, as a number of you are aware, we began to gather a series that hopefully will progress steadily through the first letter of John in the New Testament on forthcoming Sunday evenings. And you will recall that last Sunday evening we began by pro providing the necessary background to that first great book of the Apostle John. And we had begun to see together that he was writing the letter into a background in which the Christian church of the first century was involved in deep and serious controversy. That in particular, an error had arisen among the believers and infiltrated the churches to which John wrote, an error that we call today Gnosticism. And that error basically was the division between the material and the spiritual. And it led, as we saw, in terms of Christian teaching and Christian belief and doctrine, to the denial of the reality of Jesus' incarnation, and also to the denial of the atonement, because the Gnostics taught that it was inconceivable that the material body of Jesus could possibly be united to a divine person in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that the two should be combined together, one person in two distinct natures. And in a similar way, before the suffering of Jesus upon the cross, the Gnostics were bound to deny that Jesus as the God-man had suffered upon the cross of Calvary. But the divine person of Jesus left the human Jesus before the experience of the cross. And it left us, you remember, from last Sunday evening with the Gnostics teaching all through the early church that salvation, therefore, is not rooted in the person of Jesus at all but rather is rooted in knowledge or gnosis, and hence the name Gnostic. And they maintained in the Christian church that what was desirable and indeed was necessary for Christian salvation was this superior kind of knowledge that they alone had, distinguishing the material from the spiritual with all the inevitable conclusions that accompanied it. Now we saw that the effect upon the church was that some had already left, as we read in John's letter, chapter 2, verse 19, they had gone out from us because they were not of us, said John, evidently of the Gnostic party. And others remained within the church, such as Diotrephes in Third John, verse 9, who sought the preeminence through his superior knowledge, and evidently remained as a very thorn in the flesh to that company of believers. And all were perturbed 
by this new and strange, insidious heresy that had come among them. Who were they to believe? The Gnostics on the one hand, or the Apostle John and his pure teaching on the other? And so the background, I remind you this evening, as we come into our second study of this epistle, is one of dissonance and dissent and confusion and controversy. And into that background, this beautiful counsel of the Apostle John falls like music on our ears to direct us into the true way of life. And the constant emphasis comes upon us like the repetitive symphonic refrain of a great musical symphony. This we know, this we know, this we know. In other words, we who are the true Christian people of God have already got the knowledge that makes us wise unto salvation. And last Sunday we explored the great themes of this letter. That there is a theological test and there is a moral test and there is a social test to know irrefutably whether we are in Christ. The very characteristics of true Christianity should be writ large in our lives. That we believe aright, that we live aright, and that we relate to each other in the fellowship, in love, aright. Now as we approach the study, as I say, for the second time this evening in verses 1 through 4, we are going to take a survey of these four verses And they tell us without any question of doubt, and this is the theme so simple yet so profound of this evening's service here tonight, that Christianity is nothing other and nothing less than Christ himself. Beloved, you know, we're living in an age today where ordinary people ask the question, what is all, what is Christianity all about? And I find there's no consistency in the answers that they give in this age and generation in spite of the fact that according to the Gallup polls, 80% of North Americans count themselves Christians and 50% claim that they go to church regularly. What I see is a display of ignorance so often and disagreement that Christianity is loving one another, that it's helping people, that it's going to church that it's the American way of life, that it's being attuned to the tele-evangelists, and so forth. And isn't it beautiful to come to the crystal clear water of Scripture this evening and drink from its refreshing flow together that tells us without any controversy whatsoever that Christianity is Christ a person, who he is, and what he has done. That's John's answer to the conflict in the churches in his age, and that surely, beloved, is our answer to all the confusion in the age in which we, by God's providence, have been appointed to live in. So there are three great thoughts this evening, as time permits, And the first is that Christianity is concerning Christ. 
And the second one is that it's concerning life in Christ. And the third one is that it's concerning joy in Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at each one of these with me tonight. Now, first of all, what is Christianity? According to John in this prologue, and particularly I direct your verse, your attention to verses 1 through 3, what is true Christianity? It is concerning Christ. And I suggest that the striking feature of verses 1 through 3 is simply this in quite a unique prologue to any of the letters of the New Testament. The emphasis is upon the Lord Jesus. Now look at it and see the way that John approaches it and then we'll try to divide what he's doing into several parts and look at it in some detail, this message that is concerning Christ. Do you notice in verses 1 through 3 that he strings together four clauses and they are connected by the word what or in the NIV, that which. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. And so he goes on until the fifth relative clause comes, you notice, in verse 3. What we have seen or that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. And it's only in verse 3 that the verb comes, we proclaim. And the significant thing that must strike any intelligent reader of this amazing prologue to John's letter is the fact that the emphasis is upon Christ throughout. He is saying three things in effect, all of which show that Christianity is essentially grounded in the person of its founder and its master and its Lord and in nothing and nowhere else in the whole universe can the meaning of Christianity be found but there. That which we have seen and heard and handled and touched that which was from the very beginning, we proclaim to you. Now then, to break that great, amazing thought down into its constituent parts, look with me at what John precisely is saying. That he is saying, first of all, one of three things, in effect, that Christ is to be understood in his person as having a life which is eternal. You see that at the very beginning of verse 1, that which was from the beginning. It recalls very vividly, doesn't it, the prologue from John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, a name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things, John says in his Gospel prologue, were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
And it's the same focus here, the same phraseology almost. The attention is upon the divinity of Christ, upon his eternal pre-existence, the glorious second person of the Trinity, pre-existent before ever the pages of time were turned. You have the same thought written by the same man later in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 where he refers to Jesus as that lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And in 1 Peter 1 verses 19 and 20 the Lamb foreordained before the foundation of the world, but made manifest at the end of the times for your sake. But the life that is in Jesus and the person of Jesus is an eternal life because he is an eternal person. Now do you see how this relates to the Gnostic heresy that had come into the church? What they were saying is you need this new knowledge that will bring you salvation. To which John counters that which was from before the beginning of time is what you possess if you are in Christ. What need of novelty when you've got that. His pre-existence, his eternity, we proclaim him to you, the eternal life which was, which was with the Father and has now appeared unto us. Now I want you to notice that the second constituent part of this message about the person of Christ is that the life that was in him was not only eternal, beloved, it was also historical. At the end of verse 1 and again at the beginning of verse 2, that which was from the beginning we have heard and seen and handled. And in verse 2, the life which was with the Father was manifested to us. In other words, alongside the pre-existent glory of the Son of God as the eternal second person of the Trinity is something that is historic and is human. In other words, John is conveying to us that at the center and source of our salvation is not just a person who is some kind of ethereal idea some theoretical tangent that we are to follow. But the life for all its pre-existence did at a certain point in time, says John, appear and evidence itself on the stage of human history. The life which was with the Father was manifest to us. And John goes on to remind us that he was one of those privileged ones in the days of the Savior's ministry upon the earth, in the days of his flesh, who had seen for himself and handled and touched, as it were, the very eternal reality of the second person of the Godhead made flesh for us men and our salvation. 
and that he is now bound over in this letter to show that glorious one to others. Now again, do you see, beloved, what John is doing? The Gnostics divided between the material and the spiritual. To them it was impossible that a divine person could ever be united to a material body, even a sinless body. And John says, but not only can you do this, but you can't ever separate them. And I think of some of the radical theologies that are current in the church today. Maybe you are not as aware of them as I am. You look around and you read the writings of Paul Tillich and other German scholars and their scholastic ability is beyond all question. Men of great intelligence, men of great acquirements and abilities in their chosen fields of biblical study and the message, nevertheless, that is coming out in so many theological seminaries and theological textbooks is the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. That when you pare their teaching down to its fundamentals, you find that they believe in a human Jesus, ultimately who was only the very best of men and not the pre-existent, eternal, glorious second person of the Godhead, united forever to a sinless human body. And John says that you can never separate them without losing the very vitals and the very genius of the Christian gospel. No, this same Christ is no phantom, no man standing aloof from history, but one who can be touched and handled. Now in the historic Christian church to this very day, the emphasis has lain there upon that union of the divinity with the humanity in Christ. But the church has always been plagued by those who would seek to deny that great truth. And as you look through the Christian history, you find that Athanasius, there in the fourth century, had to contend with Arius over that very question of whether Jesus was merely like God or was God. And that great controversy in the early church led to the Nicene Creed that we still use in our congregation today, that he is very God, of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. And later the church fathers, you will recall, had again to contend with that same error, dressed in a different garb that led them to the great formulations of the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451 A.D. But in Christ is a complete Godhead and a complete manhood, inseparably joined together, both God and man in two natures and one person forever without confusion, change, division, or separation. And beloved, we are not in the realm of theory this evening. Anything less that affirms something less of Christ than this means the very death and decimation of the Christian church. Where are the Arians today, the followers of Arius, 
in the 4th century? Where are the 19th century Unitarians that placarded the unity of God and that Jesus was only the best of men? Where are they today? You have to look in the yellow pages for the locations of their churches. They are so insignificant in number. A Christ who is not fully divine and a Christ who is not fully human is not a Christ sufficient to sustain my worship. He is not sufficient to have died for my sins. He remains an unapproachable God or a very limited man who can do me finally no more good than I can do myself. Beloved, you must have both God and man in the person of Jesus, if he is ever to do your soul's lasting and eternal good. Now the third thing you see that John emphasizes here is not only that Jesus is eternal in his person and life and historical in his person and life, but also that it is a life which is personal. And you see that at the end of verse 1 a personified Christ, the Word of Life, capital W. And it takes us back, as I reminded you, to the very prologue of John's Gospel. And it runs as a theme, and I cannot take time this evening to expound upon it, it runs as a theme through all of the New Testament. What? But at the center of the Christian's faith, this eternal person who has come upon the stage of human history is the center and source personally of all his people's needs. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. The life that has come and been manifest to us is eternal and historical and personal. And beloved, if that is so, if he is the word of God tonight, the one great question of my life is this. Have I appropriated him? Have I come into vital saving union with him? Have I by faith, which is the ear by which I hear him as the word, the eye by which I see him in his glory, the hand of the soul that reaches out and appropriates him for myself, have I by faith taken him to cancel out my sin and bring me into right relationship with God because he is a personal Lord and a personal Savior? Thus does that life that John speaks of come to us through our union with him. The life that is eternal, that is historical, that is personal.
Now, secondly, this evening, look with me concerning the life that is in Jesus. We have been looking at the person of Jesus, but look at the life that is in Jesus, because this is the second great element that John would bring to us from his prologue. Look at verse 1 at the end. We, the word of life, has been manifest to us. Verse 2 at the beginning, the life appeared. Or further on in verse 2, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And so three or four times in these short verses, John's focus is not simply upon the person of Jesus, but the life that is in Jesus. Now, beloved, have you grasped this evening that the center of the gospel, secondly then, is a message about life? Have you really understood that? Because the majority of people around us today don't understand it. You say to them, you need life, and we have it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ah, they say, but I am already alive. To which we answer, of course you are. Alive in a rich realm of God's goodness to you, enjoying all the physical blessings that he has sent, often undeservedly so. But the Bible, you see, has another dimension of life quite apart from that which the ordinary person thinks of, not physical life at all. The Bible has concluded all of us under spiritual death, dead in trespasses and sins and brings that great sentence of condemnation to bear on all the human race without any exception whatsoever that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And without the quickening life of God himself, they will remain in that state of deadness toward God. And so if you turn in this letter over a page and you come to chapter 3 and look at verse 14, what we need, beloved, the great need, is the transition out of death into life. The life that John is speaking of here. And that transition takes place when we come to know Jesus Christ, he that has the Son has life, says the Savior in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 24. And if we are not united to Jesus Christ, we are not alive as we should be alive. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are living empty lives, away off the marked course that God has planned for us. Our souls are experiencing spiritual death all the time. And a profound separation from God, the source of true life. We are alive, yes, but to the things of this world not as we ought to be alive, blinded, deaf, dumb, unable to speak the praises of God, dead in trespasses and sins. Now do you see what I'm saying to you? How does Jesus present himself? How does he come before us? As the word of life, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And that's the message that John brings to those that are dead and missing life in that essential dimension. Only Jesus Christ can provide it. Only in Christ can you ever hope to find it. Whoever believes in me is truly made alive. A life worth living. A life that begins to be significant for eternity. A life that counts. A life that satisfies. A life that goes on forever and ever in the enjoyment of God found because he is the word of life. Now, do you see how John sets it out in two ways in verse 3? I have written to you, he says, concerning this person, the essence of whose coming is that he might give life. I have written so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. How do we experience this life, beloved? Taking the second of his thoughts first. We experience it through fellowship with the Father. Divine fellowship, in other words. Do you think of the wonder of it this evening? That wonder, that being what we are, we have a welcome into fellowship with him, being what he is. An atom sharing fellowship or communion or friendship, as the word means, with the Almighty. The unholy sharing fellowship with the altogether holy. And this is the message that John brings us. As we read in the Old Testament, it was Enoch who walked with God in very difficult times. And a little later on in the book of Genesis, in a very degenerate era like our own era today, Noah did the same. And of all the men in his generation, he alone was accounted worthy of fellowship with God. And now a like privilege is extended to us on the same terms. Fellowship with the Father. And that word means a participating in and a sharing in and a personal knowledge of God that comes to us individually and precisely. And while I have problems this evening about the terminology that is often used by evangelicals in the church today about having one's personal savior, do you know I abhor the term? It sends shivers down my spine whenever I hear it. A personal savior, having one's personal savior. Because it's not biblical terminology. It trivializes, in my understanding, the gospel. And indicates something that I think I've got control of. Like my personal hobby. Or my personal interests. I have a personal savior. But while I find that term in a certain sense unbiblical and even misleading and offensive, let me say that what John is telling us here is that there must be a personal encounter with God. This is not inherited from one's parents. 
It is an encounter with a personal God. It is the language of personal fellowship with him. He has appeared, verse 3, to us. Not a universal experience, but a particularization. And the thing you see that he is expecting our hearts to respond to is this, yes, there came a word from the Lord to me, not to the man next to me, but to me, condemning my sin and opening my eyes to the cross of Christ and leading me to the fountain of forgiveness and guiding me into fellowship with God, the word of Scripture, the word of life in Christ, that I might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Beloved, that's how the life comes to us. But do you notice the second thing, that it never comes alone, it comes to bring us fellowship with one another as well. And it stretches back to the apostles who had fellowship with one another in their day and on to believers today and so to centuries later. If you know life in Christ, you have fellowship that is vertical in its dimension with God in Christ and horizontal in its other dimension with one another in Christ. And it's like so many spokes of a wheel radiating out from a central axis. Because when we are in Christ, beloved, we are near to one another. And so you see, the message then secondly of John is that in Jesus there is life. You look around the world today, you say, isn't that found in the clubs? and in the bars, and in the discos. There's a certain sense in which fellowship is there. Yes, but not the konoinia of the New Testament, the fellowship spoken of here in the Word of God. And all oh, that in place of bickering and backbiting and other things that occasionally disfigure the face of any Christian fellowship, the church at large would receive again that baptism that brings us into union with one another. The life that is in Jesus Christ. Now thirdly, as I draw to a close, what John's prologue surely tells us is this, but there is not only the person of Christ and the life that is in Christ, but if you look at verse 4, the one verse that we haven't touched upon yet this evening, the gospel is all about joy in Jesus Christ as well. We write to make our or your joy complete. Now, when the New Testament speaks of eternal life, it's not, you see, concerned primarily with quantity as we are so often concerned about the quantity of things today, but it's concerned about the quality of life. And I challenge you to look through the many references in the New Testament to the subject of eternal life, and you'll find that almost universally the emphasis is not upon the duration of it, the quantity of it, but upon the quality of it. What it ushers us into, beloved the rich and meaningful experience 
that should be ours if Christ is ours in his pre-existence, in his glorious humanity, in his being the word of life that satisfies and nourishes our every need. We are complete in him. We write this to make your joy complete. And that is central to the purpose of this great book of First John, that there should be joy for God's people if they are in Christ. I'm reminded of one of C.S. Lewis's books. Perhaps you've read it. I'm sure many of you have. The Screwtape Letters, where at one point... C.S. Lewis has one of the demons described in that book saying concerning God, God, he's a hedonist at heart, a lover of pleasure. And he says that in a very disparaging way about God. And you know in doing so, he gives vent to what is a scriptural truth. He wants his people to be happy. And the truth about Satan is that he wants the very opposite. And again, I'm reminded of the words of one of the American poets, George Swinburne, who said, Thou pale Galilean, the world has grown gray at your breath. No. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? The devil is the one who hates joy and pleasure and seeks to come in and undermine the joys of God's people, you know from your own experience in church life personally, you've been lifted up with great joy in the Lord over some set of circumstances or something in your spiritual life. And alongside that running course of joy, there comes what? A thrust of Satan. Something that pulls the rug out right from under your feet. It's not the Lord that does that. It's Satan. And God's purpose is that we should enjoy good things in Christ, should glory in the plan of salvation, should experience great joy in our knowledge of that Savior that we have described, that there should spring from our lips the words of Charles Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. I have written says John in a later place, that my joy, his joy, should be in you. Beloved, as we finish this morning, isn't that a wonderful note on which this prologue leaves us? What is true Christianity? It is Christ. It is life in Christ. It is joy in Christ. How is your joy quotient this evening? Are you rejoicing in the word of life in spite of all the knocks that Satan is giving you? Or are you allowing the devil to come in and distort it all and turn it all upside down? Our Heavenly Father wants our joy to be complete. 
And the joy moves a believing man in the very depths of his being because the joy of the Lord simply means that a man has been brought into living touch with a living Savior. How does your record stand tonight? The fellowship of light and love. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this prologue that takes us back, back, back to the pre-eternities of God and into the present historical time and on to the future when our salvation shall in the fullest sense be complete in the day of God's glory and the appearing of Jesus Christ when that joy we know in limited measure now, that cup, that is merely half full, shall run over at the very brim and be brimful in the presence of God himself. We're thankful for these things, and we seek grace and help to live by what God has revealed for his glory's sake. Amen.